Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. What is the one thing that operationally doesn't make sense to you? Something that everyone just puts up with because that's just the way it is. That's how things are done. What about the educational system? Institutions like this aren't keeping up with the speed at which our society is moving and changing. As a result, you are left with burnout teachers and perhaps more students are potentially being left behind as a result of the teachers being burned out. Atomy is an ed tech startup that wants to be the solution to the current system and the problem. Thomas O'Donoghue and Rob Barakat are the co-founders, but Tom joins me today for this episode. Atomy is essentially a teacher's helping hand that provides personalized support and real-time data about the students and the students' learning speed and capacity, which is something teachers just don't have the time to build. That's valuable. We discuss how to articulate your point of success, why you shouldn't fall in love with your own ideas, and how AI can change your education system. So let's get into it. Tom O'Donoghue, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. So your partner, Rob Barraquette, he can't make it, he's crook, um, but you two are co-founders of a business called Atomi. Is that a play in your name? No, no. Um, it actually... It came from, we originally were talking about an atom of intelligence. So atom is the old Greek word for indivisible. So it's kind of what we do for education. We chop stuff down into the smallest parts and you can build it all back together to make some useful knowledge. Which is interesting because particle theory today would uh, uh, dispute that an atom is indivisible. In fact, it's uh, around the other way. Um, Here's your opportunity to sort of rip into Rob. Um, (laughs) I want to talk about how to guys can get together to sort of build an education platform. Don't don't hold back about ripping into um, Rob, okay, well, he's not here. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I've known Rob for a very long time. We actually met in uh, the back end of primary school in year four. So um, we've had a lot of practice working together, um, whether it be sort of assignments or... Um, you Who know, copied who? Uh, I was about to say, I feel like there was a fair exchange. I feel like we both got a lot out of that, um, out of that trade. Um, so... Um, he probably copied more of my math stuff and I probably copied more of his English things. So, um, but yeah, we've, we worked, uh, uh, you know, really hard together. We got some great results in year 12 and went on to uni. Um, we both ended up at Sydney Uni. Which school were you at? Went to St. Aloysius College. Aloysius, at this yeah. Point, yeah. So, uh, both, obviously both of you. So you're sitting around and you're thinking to yourself, like, uh, Rob, here's my mate. Uh, maybe we one day might go into business together. Was that a thought? Um, 
it, to be honest, at the time it, it wasn't. Um, we both had like families and parents that had started their own thing. But um, yeah, it's it certainly, we, like most kids at that stage that were ambitious, we thought we were going to go into professional service careers or those sorts of things. Then yeah, Lawyers, and then, accountants, dentists. Yeah, bankers. yeah. So we'd hope that we might be able to then one day translate that into something a bit more interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, it definitely wasn't, um, I, I'd be shocked today if you told 18-year-old me what I'm doing. Really? 18-year-old me probably thought I'd be, you know, you know, best case running a hedge fund now or something like that. Based uh, on what though? It's an ultimate sort of abstraction of like complicated problems of like, you know, how to find interesting value, how to sort of go into a game that's really competitive and, you know, with a bunch of smart people and see if you can, if you can make it, if you can, you know, hack it with the best. Hedge funds about data and it's about, uh, it's about probabilities and like you're picking the probability of something going up or in fact, you're picking the probability of something going down. Sometimes you might want to short something and, uh, and then you do a calculation of risk and you work out um, the probability of the event occurring multiplied by the probability of the uh, – sorry, the, multiplied by the gravity of the event occurring, so how far and if it does at all. And off the back of that, you build a, a return and therefore you know how much you're prepared to invest. And that's very mathematical. Um, was that your bent? I mean, were you a sort of a logic type person in year 12? Yeah, like I, I was, you know, always decent at, at maths and, you know, had a, um, I ended up going on to do a maths degree. So that might have been just some level of masochism. But, um, but yeah, I also like, I think a lot of people, you know, they look at some of these things like hedge funds or that and they kind of see them through that lens. But in truth, like a lot of the time, it's still about seeing the world in a way that's different than other people and getting an insight into something that's misvalued. Um, and understanding why. And often that's like can be a very human issue where people have biases or where people can't think through like the second order consequences of something. Um, so in many ways, that part also mirrors what the great part of running a business is is like. It's kind of understanding what the drivers are to success, um, how you can move those factors, and then seeing that in a way that's slightly different to the rest of the world that's hopefully uniquely valuable. So you're looking at constants and fungible items. So you're looking at what what's changeable and what can I change, but what's constant. And that is, you're right, that's a good definition of um, analytically of how you should look at a business and never try and change the constants because you've you're fucking wasting your time. That That's about efficiency and that's just waste of time and effort. I don't know if I can say this, but it's like sperm in the gutter. <laughs> you know, like it's uh, you've matured into that type of thinker. But at the age of 18, that's probably you're on the edge of all that sort of stuff. What about your partner? I think in many ways we're very similar. But um, so like there's probably in the Venn diagrams of, our, of how we think and our skill sets, there's like a significant amount of overlap. But um, on the edges where we don't in this case, like I think um, – you know, Rob has certainly sort of more um, more like, humanities base. Is it? Yeah, like yeah. in that sense of, and and I think like you know you can sort of people think about how that plays out in a stereotype of people's characters and how they think, and some of that is is true um, to an extent. Um, you know, he can come from see things at a slightly different lens than I can, but that actually means that we get a really good contest of ideas between us. Um, yeah. So it kind of, it's always worked from that slightly different approach of like us seeing it from slightly different angles to kind of stress test each other's ideas um, and kind of push that. But like, don't get me wrong, Rob is certainly capable of, you know, like he, he did an applied finance degree too. Like he's, he's certainly no, uh, no lightweight. He's good. Yeah. How you choose a, a business partner, I guess in one hand it's important to, know where they come from, you know, like 
what's their background and, and you know, like you become familiar with them, therefore you can trust them because you're familiar. You know, so trust is a big issue and um, and I don't mean that they're going to rob you and they go, I mean just trust outcomes because you know how they react under yeah. certain circumstances over a long period of time, at which point everything gets pr- pretty much presented to you. I, I think that's actually much more true than people realise. I think that a lot of people when they think about you know, co-founders, particularly when people are starting, they try and think about themselves and what they lack and trying to plug that hole of some kind of critical skill set that's necessary. But in truth, the world's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, You know, it's not just two people's skills that are going to be the be all end all of a company. And if it is, then it's probably going to be a very small company. What you actually need is someone who has the same level of commitment that you, someone that you can trust to delegate, you know, issues and thoughts to, um, and some of the most important problems that are going to be, you know, something that you're going to lean on for, for most people, it's probably the biggest investment that they'll ever make in their life, both in terms of time and, um, you know, economic opportunity. So you want someone that's on that journey with you, that's going to share, the burden of those problems, not necessarily just bring a unique skill set, because in many cases, you should probably hire for those things. But how do you become convinced that individual, in your case, Rob, is on the same journey as you are? Yeah, well, we had an interesting circumstance when we both started, as I said, like, you know, I didn't imagine kind of ending up in this business. We both were on a trajectory, you know, Rob had a, was working at a law firm. Um, I was working in you know infrastructure funds advisory. We both had career trajectories sort of thought out in some ways. Um, but this was kind of this recursive idea that kept coming back to us. And we, we spent all of our time together, you know, as friends chatting around this idea and what we would do and how we could do. And I've known Rob for long enough to understand, you know, how he thinks and and what he thinks. So it, it became a long period of us sort of, we, we couldn't get away from this idea of what this might be and how we could create it together. Um, and I think if someone's ambitious enough at that point to take a leap away from their career and take a risk with you, um, I think that sort of really in many ways showed that we were both kind of game to, you know, put our cards on the table and and really sort of give it a go. I often say I've got to be careful that it's not interpreted as being too simple. So I've often been in business with my brother, but and I say I cut his hose. It's a bit simplistic, but at the same time, that's the point is, you know, it's just well described. In someone's head, any good idea is, you know, spends a while bouncing around in there. Like for both him and I, we're the other partner playing that intellectual tennis inside their head, you know, hitting the ball back against the wall. And Oh, really? So you, you know the roles? Yeah, like we, we're good at having a contest of ideas. Like I think a lot of people are really uncomfortable with arguing and yeah, doing totally. it constructively. And not doing it on a personal level, um, you know. Or not taking personally. Yeah, like uh, separating yourself from your ideas because everyone, even you can be the most brilliant person in the world, you're going to come up with 10 terrible ideas a day. Like it's just, that's just humanity. And you kind of need that because one terrible idea might actually have the inkling of a good idea in it. So you need someone that's able to sort of, you know, even some of the things you're excited about to kind of look at the other side and be like, this is why this might not work and this is why this is necessarily bad and be able to separate yourself from that being an attack on you. Take your ego out of it yeah, and just put the thought out there on the table and allow the other individual to, I don't know how you describe it, attack it, debate it, pull it apart, whatever, who gives a shit. Yeah. Don't feel personally mortified by it all because a lot of people never succeed. They have a good idea but they can never get a partner, a business partner, and as a result of that um, they never succeed because 
I think very few things actually that have succeeded have, have been the thoughts of one person. I mean, I often say, you know, success is often built upon the broad shoulders of others. Yeah. And most good businesses have two people, at least two people who play the role that you two guys are playing. And I'm just exploring this with you because like, I mean, I've been through it so many times. It, I think it's a fascinating process of being comfortable with what the other person looks like, sounds like, thinks like, acts like, etc. And um, all of which come down to the one word we use across everything is, you know, do I trust this dude? Yeah. You know, like, but it's all those things plus more probably. So, so you're saying that in your case, between the two of you, and it's not one takes one role and the other one takes the other roles, either you bounce around, but a thought gets laid out, the other person then is prepared and then that individual puts a thought out of the table and is prepared to step back and, and then let the other one sort of start to play around with it. Then a debate occurs, but an intellectual debate. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think it's it's easier, as you said, when you have someone that you can trust in that yeah. sense that, you know, you know that they're they're looking at a contrary perspective for the right reasons because you have shared interests in this thing. Yeah, so the winner's the idea. Yeah, exactly. It's not one individual. So let's make the idea the winner yeah. or the idea the, the thought yeah. the hero. If it can stand up on its own, then, you know, that's great. But, like, let's figure out if it's got legs. Mindset around founders, the rhythm of business. It's about the thought's always got to be the hero. The business has always got to be the hero. We're just participants, yeah, it's and I think that's that's not only true of founders. Like as businesses grow, that becomes true of executives. And so some people might have people in their team that you know is someone that they use in that role to you know that might not necessarily be a founder, but having someone in there is just like you need ideas need a crucible to kind of find their final form and find the point where they get useful. Otherwise, you end up spending a huge amount of time and effort pursuing things that you know really at the end of the day might not make the grade and you end up making bad bets. How do you remove the ego out of it? Like, uh, well, fuck you. Like, that's a good idea. Like, stop pulling it apart. The great thing for particularly me and Rob is that we've been doing that since we were 12 with each other. So, like, we've got a lot of practice at that and a lot of, you know, understanding of where someone else is coming from. But the truth is for most people, like, it's a really hard thing to do sometimes. Um, And, you know, I'm always empathetic to that. But I think there's obviously like ways of how you can talk to be able to sort of help people go with that. But like at the end of the day, you have to, it takes a bit of practice and it takes, you know, sometimes you, you, no matter what you do, if someone expresses something in a way that's a little bit confrontational and negative, you're going to have to, you know, go back and sort of think about it a little bit and start to separate like what were, what were they attacking? Like were they attacking me? Were they attacking what I'm doing? Um, or were they attacking the idea? Because you nearly have to be dispassionate. When everyone says you've got to be passionate about your idea and be like, you can't fall in love with the idea because it's just an idea. Something that popped into your brain. Totally. But yeah, people, this is this is true, particularly like, um, particularly in creative businesses as well, people really deeply conflate themselves with their work. And, you know, if it's like, it's particularly if something's like, you know, an artistic expression of yourself, it's hard to not take a criticism of that as a criticism of you. But in truth, it's like it's just it's one one output of your work, and once you kind of put that paintbrush down or whatever the you know metaphorical thing is, it's no longer you. And like you have to have that kind of perspective to be able to see something as separate from yourself. Otherwise, you're always going to get caught up in bad ideas, 
You're going to get offended by criticism of it. Um, all those sorts of things, which are ultimately just not constructive to, as you said, letting the idea win. We are not our thoughts is the bottom line out of all this. I mean, yeah. I'm getting a bit deep here, but like, but I think it's really important because, you know, yeah, I mean, I see all this shit up on Instagram all the time, you know, the fucking mentor, uh, not me, but other people are saying they're mentoring, you know, and they're talking about, uh, you know, passion and I don't know, shit. Like uh, it's these sorts of discussions need to be had and, uh, you know, co-founders and startups and all that sort of stuff, they need to understand this sort of stuff. Um, you know, it's about being dispassionate but at the same time having drive. They're different things. Um, I can, if I'm too passionate about the idea, I'm too much in love with the idea and I'm, I'm going to spend all my time protecting it, defending it, yeah. and not enough time uh, prosecuting it and developing it and, and, and refining it and um, um, enlarging it and uh, evolving it, et cetera. Because the idea or the thought that, you know, you guys start off with probably is not where you are today and it's, it's evolved into where you are today. But so it's never yeah. going to be the same. It's, it's going to get pulled apart. Yeah, you Every hope time. With, you hope with new information that thoughts change. Otherwise, you 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 know you, you're stuck in stasis. So, um, but I think like we talk about the concept of strong ideas weekly held. Like we want people that. What are does happy. that mean? Yeah, so you can you can come in with a strong perspective, and you can actually come in being passionate. But what you kind of need to be able to do is that if there is information that conflicts with your point of view, you have to be able to like let go of that idea in this sense. So um, you can't be, you can be passionate in a sense, but you can't be immovable. Right. Um, and you can't defy logic or reason to, to get there. And particularly like if you think about like if we've, if we've, you know, if I've built a great team of executives and leaders and if I've hired well, and if they come in with a different perspective than me, they might be passionate about it. It's more about, in my case, understanding why does this person think about that? Like what information do they have that's led to that thought? And can I understand whether those assumptions or information are true? And that might change my perspective on that or it might change theirs. And we both have to be willing to move on that even though we might be passionate about something and kind of put it aside. So you know, what you're talking about here is um, the concept of proper deduction, making a proper deduction yeah. uh, with logic. Too often in business, people go on hunches. Sometimes they turn out to be right. Yeah, I think that's that's a separating the concept of like what is like something that follows a logical conclusion and what is a bet. Yeah. And like there's nothing wrong with taking bets. Like that is we do it all day, incomplete information and a perspective that's ultimately you might have some data or you might have some insight, but like you're really taking a swing at the end of the day. And that's fine as long as you can identify what they are and what the risks are and what the likelihood of it working or the consequences of it working or not are. And you can make reasonable logical judgments about which bets you should take. Do you actually put a number on it? Like, do you just sort of do? Because when I was in partnership, with James Packer um, and Kerry, James used to always ask me to reduce everything to a number. So out of ten, he'd always say, like, out of ten, what do you think? Um, every time we had a new idea, every time we had a new product, every time we had a new go to market uh, campaign, whatever it is, in terms of out of ten success. So all the time. Yeah, that is helpful. Not in the sense of like like. You know, I did enough of a stats degree to to know that people are really terrible predictors of most things. Like humans are pretty fallible in but that we sense. we like to that. Yeah. But I think the interesting, like why that's really useful is that if someone goes, it's an eight, you'd be like, okay, what's the difference between eight and 10 here? Like what's what's the gap? Why? Yeah, he would say why eight? Yeah. Yeah. And why I think, not nine? Why not seven? Yeah. And the discussion around that might mean that you can find a way to be like, actually, we can take some of the risk out of here so that that eight's a really good bet. 
like. So I think it's a good forcing function for discussion. But in terms of like whether you can actually really fundamentally be on the money with what the, like, good luck, honestly. You're yeah. better off going to the casino. Yeah, t- totally. Mind you, we did own a casino. But um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I guess I should just jump into how you and Rob have that thought to start up Atomi. We're in a pretty unique space. It, it, pretty much everyone's gone to school at some point. So everyone has a very first person perspective of what that experience is like. And no one would say that it like it's perfect. Like like everyone knows that it's you know it's deeply inefficient in some ways. It's complicated in others. Like uh, it's a, a big messy system in this case. It's a one system to satisfy a lot of people too. Yeah, like which is, has been therefore it has been efficient by definition. Yeah, like the education system was built at a time that you know essentially we're giving laymen votes. So essentially, you know, the, the government in their own self-interest said if we're going to get people to vote on issues, they should probably have a basic understanding of society and be able to read and write and all those kinds of things. Um, and also at the same time, then they started to realize that that massively lifted productivity and lifted people out of poverty and grew their economy. So, you know, they kind of went, how do we deliver this system to everyone? And they did that at a time that they didn't have any tools like we have today. So it's a very industrial batch process model of distributing information to people. Um, so it's really, it's easy to see how schools got to be the way that they are. But the issue is, is that once you have a big system in this case, it's, you know, it's a big ship and then often people have a very small rudder on it. So it's very hard to change and be dynamic in that. Um, so it means that there's just a lot of gaps left where school might not work great and particularly it might not work great for everyone in the same way. Um, and because everyone's an individual and we all learn differently and we all work differently means a lot of people aren't getting the best experience that they can. And it's no fault of anyone in there. It's just. It's systemized. That's the, it's it's a systemic inefficiency. So Rob and I went to school together. We worked our absolute asses off to do well. Um, and kind of in retrospect, we were like, that could have been so much easier. We could have had so much more fun if these things had happened. Like if we had the right resources available to us 24 seven, when and where we needed them if we had something that was a lot more personalized to the stuff that we were struggling with. And if we had it communicated in a really short, simple, pragmatic way to us, um, uh, rather than sort of, you know, the, the big sort of mishmash of digging through all the resources that we had to get to. Um, so at the same time also, you know, like many kids in that point, we were tutoring kids and we kind of were firsthand getting the information back of what these kids were struggling with and why. Um, and we kind of was thought like, why doesn't this, this exist? Like at that same point, like YouTube became one of the biggest search engines in our generation. Still is. Yeah. The, you know, every kid now had a high bandwidth smartphone pretty much stuck to them. Access. You know? Yeah. So all of these factors were coming together and the best people had was like an e-textbook in many cases of like, you know, we, we took our textbook that could have been written a thousand years ago and put it into a PDF online. Big deal. Yeah. We kind of spent a long time talking about like, my God, this represents eight, like education's 8% of GDP. There is no education companies in the fortune 500. Like if you think about that conceptually, it's a really weird mismatch of, you know, the, the economy. Um, so we're like, there's got to be some some white space here. And we kept looking for people that are doing what we wanted to do and there was nothing. So there's no model. Yeah, it was kind of in this case of like... Well, there's no proxy for you. So you had to invent it yourself then. Yeah, we thought if no one's going to do it, we might as well be us. Um, 
and you know we we jumped in and then started uh, creating and eventually within the first year with a really terrible like I can say this day like we, our first product we launched was genuinely horrifying compared to what we do today um, we had almost like 14% of all the year 12 students in our current state register with us for help. So it just, it just screamed that there was need in the market for this. Um, and at that point we kind of got together and went, listen, this is probably more than just a side hustle. This is, you know, sounds like something that's really structurally important that we could make something really big out of. So let's, let's give it a go. Well, I'm going to go to break. I want to come back and talk a little bit deeper about it. I'm going to talk a bit deeper about the product and um, I also want to talk about how you distribute it. But I want to also get into, you know, what does the future hold? So how do you make it something that every student uses? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm back here with Tom and uh, give me a you know one minute description of what a Tommy does. Give you the, the sales pitch. Yeah. yeah. Um, so at Atomy, we call ourselves a teaching and learning platform. Essentially, we support high school students um, and teachers all the way from, you know, learning initial concepts and, and teaching them, instructing them, understanding how kids are performing and making that experience as optimal as possible. Hopefully at the end of the day, getting them some great results and getting them closer to whatever they want to do after school. Is it more directed to teachers for teachers to give to the students or is it direct to students? Our business, we have a two model. So we sell some support directly to students as well, where they can subscribe to a monthly fee and get access to services. But more than 90% of our business by revenue is working with schools right through their teachers um, in that case. So that's the predominant way. There's a couple of different factors that we always think of students as our end customers at the end of the day, like they're the ones that, you know, both us and teachers are in it together to help. But in many cases, what we're doing is providing teachers with tools and resources and data and insight that they need to be most effective at their job and to give them the best resources to do their job really well and kind of, you know, take away some of the busy work and ultimately let teachers do more of teaching. Okay, uh, my godson is doing work experience with me sitting outside. He's supposed to be sitting here listening to us today, but he's on his he's on his mobile phone playing fucking games or something. But um, and uh, he's but he's quite quite good at maths. Like he's well and truly way above every other. He's like a couple years ahead of his his year, and um, but he's not that great at the other stuff. Um, he's good at science, but well, he has an aptitude towards uh, mathematics. He does tutoring. He gets a math tutor. 
I, I often wonder whether that's the thing that's propelled him way, way ahead of everybody else or whether it's his own aptitude or some combination of the two, I'll never know, but, but good on him, he's doing great. How does it make it easier for him in mass, for example, or am I running down the wrong track? Yeah, no, that's, it's a great, we'll draw it down to a practical example. So for example, with him, uh, he might be great at math and, you know, he might be strong or weak at other subjects in this sort of case. For everyone, like they have a natural, you know, ability, you know, in in some senses, like there's always that. But like at the end of the day, we want everyone to be kind of good at everything. Like the the old adage of like, you don't need to be a bodybuilder, but you should be able to lift a table. Like it's it's something that, you know, no matter what you're good at, I think a lot of people, they, they then, you know, get trapped into I'm good at this and I'm not good at that. Yep. And often it's because they get stuck. Um, so for example, with him, if he's really good at math in, you know, his teacher might have a class of 30 kids, um, and he might be near the top of that. Um, but they have to teach at one pace for everyone in that class. Yes. Which there's a problem because he gets bored. He's, he's doing two years above math. Yeah. Like that's in his year. So he gets bored with what he has to do in the class. Yeah. So in this case, like a teacher that they the response to that might be able to, I've got some extra sheets or some worksheets or something like that, that I can, you know, get you accelerated on. But at the end of the day, like, you know, 30 to one, like there's a division problem there. Yeah, like you can't, yeah you can't get enough personalized support in this case. So yep. with programs like ours, every kid can go at a different pace. So it's not designed just for him. It's designed for the kid who might be in the bottom of the 30 as well. Exactly. So okay. um, we can, the, our idea is to support kids learning at a rate that is appropriate for them. Right. And we use in particular, like one of the, the big things that we do is we use all the data and insight that we get from our product to understand how kids are going and then recommend a path and a pace that's appropriate for them. But so, to the, do you recommend to them or to the teacher? Both. All the, the lessons in that we have in our platform, like a lot of them, they adapt so that each kid like as they go, as they're responding to questions, like this sequence of what they will see will dynamically change. So it will sort of support them in the areas that they're struggling with. So it'll kind of naturally help them get there. But also we then feed that information to the teacher and we get, they get, the teacher now gets signal as opposed to like just, hey, it looks like this particular student is struggling. It's this student is struggling in these particular issues and this is exactly where and why. So that means that the teacher, and they get that information in real time. So it doesn't have to wait six months until an exam when it's too late to do anything about it and we've moved on to another topic and now this topic builds upon the knowledge of the last topic and you're just getting further and further behind the, you know. Until it's too late. Exactly. And also their little um, personalities are bruised and they feel like they're idiots and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, exactly. Um, So at that point we give that teacher the information of like, the the most real-time insight of what they can do and teachers can use that to then jump in and run an intervention that's particularly supportive to that kid. Right. And they can do that much more quickly and much more, you know, and the earlier we do that, often the smaller those interventions need to be. Like if you're missing a simple concept, that's easy to address now. But if you're missing like the 10 things that build upon that, that's a really hard thing to go back and sort of, you know, and that takes a huge amount of teachers' time. So we, we help sort of teachers target their interventions where they matter most. And, and, and how would that happen though? So does it just identify exceptions or does it identify, does it rank everybody? So you can slice and dice it in whichever way you want. So we've got some reports that will sort of say like, hey, these are the kids that are doing really well. Yep. This is where they're doing really well. These are the kids that are struggling. This is where they're struggling with that, what concepts are there or questions they're struggling with. And then we give easy ways for teachers to set work based on that. Right. So they might say- So you go back to the teacher. Well, in, in, in no, for the, most schools, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we have some things in the platform that like will change how we recommend content to kids. Um, but particularly in the lower years, like 
to put it simply, not a lot of kids are doing independent study out of their own volition. Like yeah. it's yeah, yeah. it's driven yeah. generally mom and by, dad. yeah, like either mum and dad or the tiger teacher. Um, tiger dad. Yeah. So it's we we try and sort of give that information. But at the same time, we we want to make kids be excited about progressing. And as you can, you actually mentioned it, like it's a really good point, which is that getting stuck is an incredibly demotivating uh-huh. experience. Like it's, it's a heartbreaker and especially like no one wants to feel or look stupid, particularly in like when you're impressionable and, you know, in a class of your peers. So having something that allows kids to get unstuck and to work at a pace that they're getting it and they're keeping up means generally that wherever you are on the spectrum, you are more engaged, happier, and therefore doing more work and more, you know, excited to keep progressing. So there's a massive influence on like student psychology and engagement. So it's, it's, it's critical for the teacher to be engaged with your software because it's it, because otherwise if the teacher's not looking at the prompts or the um, insights that you guys are providing, then it's probably just going to be lost. Yeah, it just makes it like there's obviously still the value of the kids having the resource too there, like but they, they, they miss out um, on, you know, some of the things. But also like at a very basic level, I think anyone would be able to tell you, like if you ask people like who was your favourite teacher? Like most people still have like decades later a really like clear understanding of who that person is. And if you ask why, it's not because they helped me with like math problem 3B in my class. It's because they did all of the other human things that are really important. Like they were passionate and motivated and engaged and they they did, you know, they, you know, we had great discussions and all these sorts of things and they shared some of their love and passion for that subject with me. Yeah. And that, like I've got a great product, you know, what I contend probably one of the best in the world. There's many parts of that, that no matter what in a digital product, you cannot replicate. So that's many ways why we want to take away some of the simple stuff and some of the basic things so that we can give teachers more time to do that. And so we really need teachers in this equation because at the long tail of issues in this sort of case, like you, you can't really deal with everything. Um, whether it's, you know, kids having some trouble at home or whether, you know, that kid just needs a pat on the back a little bit now and then for some specific things or, um, you know, someone's really engaged by competition and someone's really not, um, you know. They're just not competitive. Yeah, like teachers are, are amazing at dealing with all the, the human aspects of those things that we could never really do to to the greatest extent. So that's like teachers are always going to have a really important place in education and that's the same of like whether it be a teacher in a formal sense or, you know, a parent or, you know, a mentor, you know, in that sense of like someone who actually works to understand the human on the other end and what drives them and can help share some passion and advice and insight. So we sort of think that in many cases we help teachers shift from becoming lecturers to becoming like specialist doctors, like that they understand deeply what's going on with their kids, where that, and then they can work specifically with each kid to drive and motivate them to their individual success. So, I mean, teacher shortages, teacher recruitment, teacher pay during COVID, post-COVID um, has been a huge topic. Oh, yeah. Around, probably around the world, but definitely here in Australia. How successful has your platform been? Like, It varies in different markets, but overall we have, you know, somewhere in the order of about, 10% of all the kids in Australia will, in high school, will, will use some version of our platform to some extent. Um, we're trying to work both to accelerate that as an aggregate number and also, you know, we might support 
some students in one or two subjects and not the others because, you know, the, the school hasn't adopted it for everything yet or some year levels but not others. So we're, we're trying to increase our sort of breadth and depth of the the students that we can support. How do you distribute your product then? Yeah, um, uh, unfortunately, you can't just turn up to a school. Um, so it's, it's a few, few child safety laws that... Yeah, um, these days, these days, yeah. Yeah, that, uh, that mean you can't quite do that. But um, so... But we have, yeah, we have a great sales team um, that essentially go and particularly talk to, you know, sort of top-down sales. Like they go and talk to the decision makers in schools, whether it be the, you know, heading, head of teaching and learning or the, the principal or head of departments, um, talk about what our product is, how other schools use it, the value that they get out of it, all those kinds of things. And at the same time, we also have a bottom-up approach where we have essentially a freemium offering where teachers can log into our platform, use it to some extent, get excited and then by the time that they kind of hit some limitations of that, we can start a conversation with them to to start getting the decision makers involved that have budget authority to sort of make a purchasing decision. You're an aggregator of data then, young people's data. Yeah, exactly. Um, how do you manage the safety elements of all this stuff? Yeah, student privacy is a massive hot button issue. Um, and for good reasons, a lot of people are, you know, deeply sceptical around, you know, you know, trusting data to third parties. Um so kind of from day one, we made that like a core principle of like, if we're going to get trust and if we're going to get a big percentage of the market to come and use us, this has to be like a foundational promise of our offering. So did you de-identify the individuals and, and log them in as a number or a code? We still have essentially integrated systems in this case, but we treat pretty much all the information as like highly sensitive. So um, we have uh, a lot of controls and methods. So like, for example, our team, like a lot of members in our team can't see information about particular, you know, students and kids and those sorts of things. Um, and how we report that information, we can sort of uh, make sure that it's very sensitively handled. Um, we also really careful around the systems and technologies and processes that we use internally to make sure that all of that's controlled. So Yeah, so is it, it where, where's it held? Is it centralised or decentralised? Yeah, so we have essentially cloud hosting providers that, that use that, um, you know, like many, almost all other, you know, software companies. But you're not so, doing blockchain or anything like that. You're not decentralizing the, the info. No, at the moment that doesn't add value to our, our end users. Like our focus is yeah, just pretty laser on how can we get the right experience for the right kid at the right time. And at the moment that's, you know, mostly sort of traditional technology helping us do that. Is there like an, an ethics overlay on all this around the data? Yeah. So the governments in Australia actually have relatively stringent regulations on this. So um, there's also the Australian privacy principles, which are generic regulations, but that's, then, that's more yeah, generic. Yeah. yeah. But then within schools, uh, providers are actually audited by, um, education services. Australia have a service there called safer technology for schools where they run risk reviews and audits of the, the providers that they actually have to give you being a provider. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and in depth, like they look at what data we capture, how we use that data, how we retain that data and how we dispose of it. And all the processes that go around that to make sure that, you know, for each use case and every bit of functionality on our platform, how we do those things in a safe way. You know, it's as a business, it's not fun having to go through totally. all the rigmarole to do that. That's regulatory. That's, but, yeah. you know, you got you to do it. Can I ask you, because something would fascinate me, I don't know if you're doing it or not, but I mean, you're using much machine learning around all the data. Yeah. Um, we're kind of in a Cambrian explosion of the AI at the moment. Um and there is a huge amount of things like, I know, as we sort of spoke about, like in a sort of mission to help each kid work at their own pace, understanding each kid individually and making predictions around how they're going and what they're needing at scale. 
like AI is great at doing some of those things. Um, it's really good at, you know, getting personalized predictions. And that's kind of why those systems are used for like what recommending yeah. something specific to you on Netflix or something like that, you know, particularly because each kid learns individually. We can look at some things like, for example, you know, how a kid has gone in each individual topic, um, where they're strong and weak relatively, how many times they've practiced something. And we can use information like that to understand how someone is going to retain content over time. Do you then do you then cross-reference it, say, you know, the kids at uh, Rudy Hill High School versus St. Aloysius Milson Point, the boys, the girl, is a boy or a girl, um, he's black or white, he's uh, Chinese or European or whatever. Do you, do you go through those processes or can't you do that? We don't have any information around right. kids' racial or, you know, um, what about we, surnames? Yeah, we essentially, we just look at, we only capture the information that we need to give recommendations back or to give the teachers the insight on how they should act. Right. So we don't look at broad demographics, those sorts of things, but some stuff that we can look at, which is really powerful, which is that one kid struggling in this topic in math is actually genuinely or commonly the kid, that same type of kid that's struggling in this area in science. Right. And like we can go, okay, like what's the link between these two things and maybe what the science and math teacher can work together to address that particular issue. And do you, do you pull that out yourselves and sort of boardroom it? We actually productize some of those things. So like, for example, a kid can log into our system and when they drop into science, for example, they can see a little alert pop up that will say, hey, it looks like based on our predictions, it would be best for you to revise this particular lesson right now. Right. Um, and we can do those sorts of things. Um and we can sort of, we have like, you know, we use little strength indicators on some things to sort of predict how that'll evolve over time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and how people forget things. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of broader senses, we can also work with schools on an individual basis to sort of say like, hey, like if you want a deeper understanding of how you're going or how this might, how, or how, how you're going is likely to end up, um, we can, our team can work with them to sort of give them a more detailed insight into those sorts of things. Do you ever engage with the students? You're always trying to improve the quality of the teachers, but you're getting it from the students. Yeah. Um, I think that's a, it's a little bit of a dangerous game at the moment, particularly like at the moment there's... Well, they're too immature for that. There's a, there's a massive amount of shortage of teachers and yeah, like, so... You can't we, be eliminating people. Yeah, exactly. We don't want like, and beyond that, almost all teachers like... No, no teacher got into education for the money. Um, you know, that no one sort of like most of them are there for really altruistic reasons. Um, so we want to be able to help support every teacher we can to be the best teacher that's possible. And like as someone who works, like our product works with teachers every day. We, we don't want to, we're happy to give them helpful information, but we don't want to necessarily do things that are, um, you know, destructive to them. And sometimes like teachers, like any parent will know, there's points where you've got to be the bad guy. Like there's points where you've got to be a little bit tough on someone for the right reasons and you might do something that a kid might not love on face value but is in their best interest. So sometimes kids can't necessarily see the forest through the trees and those sorts of stuff. So we can do stuff like maybe in the long run to help sort of lift up, lift up that information but I would always be really skeptical of using it as a blunt instrument. Um, you know, like in the same case, like with Jack Welch, like, you know, as it came out, there was like a lot of people that were gaming that system, you know, GE famously, um, you know, had put people into the bottom 10%, including a couple of people that had died, you know, like that. They were I remember well, because I was the chairman, the global chairman of their business, um, in mortgage, mortgage emerging markets around the world. And I used, it was getting, ga I was getting gamed by, so it was yeah. an upward reporting business. So everyone upward managed. 
yeah. you upwardly managed whoever was above you, sort of thing. And uh, I always thought it was flawed, but it, but I just thought it, it it is probably a bit of an extreme example, but um, it is a process of trying to get an attempt to get the best possible outcome. And look, in the interest of time, um, this has been a fascinating conversation for me. I'm sorry I haven't talked too much about the business, but I have. Because because the whole conversation is fascinating for me. Um, have you got anyone ask me? Because I've been asked all the questions. You got a question for me? One of the the interesting aspects, like particularly at the moment, I can with enough hubris say that I'm still relatively you know young in this business. Um, I can I, say you are. Yeah, um, relatively. Yeah, I I got a few more grey hairs than I had when we started this company, but you know it's 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 still relatively age. Yeah, exactly. It's age, not age. Um, so. I went to university just about the time that we were coming through the global financial crisis and those sorts of things, probably the last major sort of shock to the economy and probably more than most, you had a really insight into, you know, the mechanics of those sorts of things. But, um, you know, obviously, like, we're in a more interesting time now, like the NASDAQ prices are not what they once were. We're really lucky that we work in a business that, like schools is probably the most immune to like... The, you know, the broader economy as well. And generally the last thing that people cut. The mandatory. Yeah, exactly. So we're, we're pretty stable in that sense, but it would be really interesting from your perspective, how you kind of see this situation unfolding, whether this is kind of like the correction we needed to have and it's going to be short lived or whether you kind of with a bit of wisdom and experience sort of start to say like, this actually might be a complicated business environment for five, 10 quarters. I don't want to sound like Paul Keating, but it is probably the correction we need to have as opposed to hoping this becomes the recession we had to have. But for the same reasons that Keating said that, I know it sort of these things end up becoming an echo for the rest of your life if you make those fearless predictions. But I think that I actually think that we do need to have a correction. Well, I think that there is a cohort of people in the country who need to have exposure to something that's different as opposed to something being the same for 10 years. So for the last 10 years since the GFC, um, most people who are in there, you know, between 20 and 40 have never really experienced a change. In other words, um, higher unemployment, high inflation, low global growth, um, cost of living, the difference between what you earn and what you spend, shrinking, uh, lack of ability to have discretionary dollars in your pocket, um, therefore, and then for as a result of the general liquidity reductions, so there's just less money in the world because over the last ten years since the GFC and only stopped last year, governments have been printing money, so they've been throwing money at the economy during the GFC. Australia didn't, but most of the other bigger nations did, and then during COVID, Australia even Australia was throwing money at the economy, like just so there was. Um, we were flush with liquidity. As a result of that, we've got high house prices, you know, everybody spent like drunken sailors, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I therefore think, and I'm not saying this in a moralistic way or, a you know, on my high horse position. I, I'm just saying in a cyclical sense, it makes sense that we need to expose a lot of people to change. And I think that's exactly what we're going through. Um, the Reserve Bank in the, you know, they only made the statement on the, you know, the, the last meeting, the last sentence of their statement, which is a bit of a, a, a tell from my point of view. They said they remain committed to reducing inflation back down to the inflationary range of 2 to 3%. Therefore, they'll use interest rates, which is the only instru instrument they have to do that. So 
I think the Reserve Bank wants to get away from these very low official cash rates. I mean, we've had extraordinarily low official cash rates, but they want to get away from just even one and a half is 1.5 is not a low enough cash rate. I think they want to get up to two and a half. I think they want to put our, put our, normalize our, our, our nation in a structural sense. Normalizing means get up to about two and a half percent. And therefore that's going to create a reduction in liquidity in the world in Australia and the world, because the whole world's doing this. In fact, much more aggressive in New Zealand, much more aggressive in the US, much more aggressive in the ECB, but definitely much more aggressive in the UK. So this is going to be a global contraction of liquidity when in fact for the last 10 years we've been enjoying a global flood of liquidity, a total glut. And this could cause recession. And by the way, everyone carries on a recession, but it's all bullshit. It means nothing. It's just two negative GDP quarters in a row. Who cares? It doesn't really mean anything. But I think the substantial meaning of what's going on and it's going to be driven by all the central banks around the world as a consensus. I even put it up as a conspiracy when I spoke to Stephen Kukulis last week, but is this, if we actually have a problem in the world, a real problem like a war that engages many nations or if we have some real problem like a famine or something, some real economic issue, none of the central banks around the world have enough headroom to correct it. And we only have one tool around the world uh, other than throwing money at the economy and that's interest rates. So to you to make that one tool effective, you've got to sharpen both sides of the knife and to do that, you've got to increase the headroom and you've got to take it from 0.1% to 2.5% in our case in Australia, maybe even higher and everywhere around the world. It's nearly like all the central bank leaders around the world have actually had a little get-together over a cup of coffee and uh, lamingtons and uh, talked about how do we get ourselves back up to normal. And the reason we want to get back up to normal is because if something shit happens, we've got, we've got to be at normal to effectively use the only tool we have. That's interesting. So therefore, reduce liquidity in the world. That's where we're at. And I think we're going to go. this is going to go on for a while. It could result in a recession, but I'm not too bothered about that. I might I don't like it, but a recession could happen because – that's but it's just a it's just a number, and you're a numbers guy. And it's just a measure. It doesn't mean anything at the end of the day. It doesn't really mean anything. So I think that's where we're going to end up: liquidity issues. And I, but I don't think it's going to affect education. You know, like, like maybe parents perhaps paying a subscription to get on your platform might be different. But educational, you know, we we tend to when we get into these those periods of recession, where we tend to spend our way out of it. And I think that's going to be the next process. But at, at, with the Labor Party, it's going to be at education levels, health levels. I think the money's going to go back into the fundamentals like education. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm certainly hoping so, um, you know, both for altruistic and self-interested reasons. It's going to be a, a very strange new world for a lot of businesses who have kind of you know, everyone looks like a genius in a bull market. Like, Yeah, every boat floats on a rising tide. Yeah, so I feel like there's going to be a lot of people who are going to have to take a real hard critical look at what is actually generating value for them. And unfortunately, probably when we lift this skirt up, I think there's, you know, a lot of a lot of businesses that... Um, are naked underneath. Yeah, exactly. Or it's it's not as pretty as it should be. Uh, <laughs> 100%. And like yeah. it's, you said it right at the beginning, to, to survive in these environments, you've got to re- remove yourself from the thought. And you got to put the... The, the thought, this thought that we are going to go into this tough period in the middle of the, the table, remove yourself from it, 
the recession, remove yourself from the possibilities, remove yourself from the possibilities of a, a liquidity freeze, if, if we call it that, or normalization, and game it yourself. So last week I talked to Stephen Kukulis about exactly this. In order to survive these periods, you've got to remove yourself, don't get caught up in it, and start to game it now. What have I got to do now to game that, that event if it occurs, it may not occur, but like if it occurs, what have I got to do to prepare myself? What knowledge do I need? What data do I need? What inputs do I need to get to know how to make a bet? You know, what's the track like? Is it going to be a wet track? Is it a dry track? What's this individual? What's that thing? Work? How's this horse work on that particular track? I'm not talking about racing, but I'm talking about gaming probability the events. Yeah. yeah, and instead of trying to bet a winner, bet the losers. So, you know, there's more losers in a race than there are winners in a race, so lay the bets. So, you know, like get get probabilistic about all this and and remove yourself from and use some intellect and, you know, in your case, co-founders and good senior staff and start to think your way through what's going to happen in two years' time if this event occurs and how do we prepare ourselves for that? And if you're a mortgage holder, simple mortgage holder, how do I prepare myself for a, you know, a a 6% interest rate? Well, it means I'm going to be paying more to my lender. So, you know, how do I game this? Like, have I got to get more money? Have I got to charge more for myself? Have I got to get an extra job? Have I got to cut back my expenses? Um, et cetera. It just prepare and, but, but stop thinking about it. Don't worry about it too much. And I know that you're a, you're logically inclined and deduction inclined. Put it in the middle of the table. I love that idea of you're removing yourself from the idea or the thought and, uh, and sitting down with intelligent, like-minded people and uh, arm wrestling the deal. But just keep arm wrestling. Doesn't, there's no winner. Yeah, exactly. It's a really interesting market to compete for talent at this point as well, yeah. particularly because the the vacuum of of talent sometimes has kind of stopped a little bit. Um, and I think they kind of, you know, it's sort of like it's burped up a bit of the, the overflow, um, which is, I guess, uh, you know, particularly in software engineering and some of these like classes, the, the race for talent has led to some pretty incredible economic opportunities for the participants in that market to say the least like you know um, some salaries are getting pretty scary numbers and i think hopefully it will allow us to get to a healthier point of reality normalization yeah exactly Um, we've got to normalize we can't keep doing what we've been doing it just because it doesn't work yeah i think well at the end of the day like the although the multiples have come off a lot in the long run like hopefully it's it, it would have been a little bit unrealistic to expect them to sort of last. Like there was a lot of people that were betting on future cash flows a long way out um, and some, you know, it's some very long odds. So And getting crazy multiples and ridiculous valuations. If you're going to build a big company, like, you know, we were, I think, poor enough, long enough to sort of learn some of the hard lessons around like gross margins, you know, unit economics and really like what it takes to like build an incrementally valuable business, not just the hopes and dreams of it one day being that. Yeah. I'm hoping those lessons serve as well in this. But, yeah, we'll hopefully be able to pick up some great talent that, um, along the way that, you know, either can't find a home right now or or may have, you know, their home's unfortunately not not what it once was. Well, I mean, I, I think your approach is a good approach, you and uh, your absent partner, uh, business partner. I think your approach is a good approach and uh, it's logical. And the guy, I mean, I love businesses that work on proper deduction um, as opposed to just pin the tail on a donkey. Really good to see you. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks, Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Mentor with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistants, Simon McDermott. This is a mentored podcast.